right. I believe the winter program starts next week. Am I correct? I love being right. I feel so validated. Well, it doesn't help me say I'm right and I'm wrong, right? <laughs> then I'm blanketing. Okay, so that means we have to finish chapter th- two this week. That's right. When the winter program comes, we're going to be doing chapter three. Because it wouldn't be nice to make them come in the middle of something. Okay. But <laughs> like, start from the beginning. Okay. So, now, if we finish this chapter and we have time left over, then we'll do something else, not Tanya, between. So if it takes only two classes and we have a third class or whatever it is, we'll do something else. I have faith that it'll take us three classes. I don't know. You never know. I tend to, I tend to be unpredictable. Okay, not about this. That's true. Okay. Um... So we were discussing, we were discussing the relationship between the godly soul of every single Jew and the source of the godly soul. And that every godly soul is equally godly, but even though there are differences between the souls of the patriarchs of our forefathers and Moshe versus the souls of these generations, the souls of the heads of a generation to the feet of the generation. And also within one person, there are these different levels of souls, known as, what are the Hebrew names of those levels? Nefesh, Ruach, and Neshama. And the differences are not because one is more godly or less godly, but the differences in their manifestation, and that was analogized to gestation, right? That all of the different parts of the body have the same essence, but the development in the womb manifests, causes them to manifest differently. That's what we spoke about last class. Yes? Okay. Now. Hmm. So, in the analogy of a person, the father plays the role of the source of the essence and the mother plays the role of differentiating the different parts of the limbs to give it actual existence. Right? That's what we spoke about? Okay. So, in, when we talk about the godly soul, it's the, this sphere known as Chachmah, God's supernal wisdom, that's what, so to speak, houses the, quote, essence. And what is it that differentiates the different souls? And remember what that was? The four worlds. The four worlds. So, what we're going to do now is I'm going to talk to you about the four worlds in brief, so we understand a little bit about that. It's really annoying when other people call me. It should be so Okay. Wow, I cannot imagine. Okay. <laughs> but I have been through this before, right? Um, okay. So. Okay. So, I'm not going to give you now a class on the four worlds in all of their details because that would be unreasonable. Um, but I want to give enough understanding of the four worlds so that we can at least understand what, it, what they are and why they're relevant here in this chapter of Tanya. Okay. So, the first thing to know about the four worlds is that they're worlds. Oh. Yeah. That's an important thing Whoa. to know. Did Whoa. you know that there are worlds? Now I do. 
Okay. What are you defining world as? That's exactly what we're going to do. What, def- what is the meaning of a world? Okay. So, every world has a center. Okay. In order for something is a center. And that center is the someone whose world it is. And then everything that they are encountering or relating and experiencing are the objects or entities in that world. So this is actually true even the way we speak in English. People say like, what's going on like the world of a child? We don't think that they're in their own world, right? Now what does that mean? In the center of their world is themselves. And the things that are in that world are only the things that they are aware of and have relationships with. So for instance, my two-year-old, what are the different locations in his world? I mean, you just take a guess. His house. His house, okay. So there's, there's, there's the house and the rooms in the house. What other locations are there? School. The car. School. He's two. Okay. So home. daycare, but yeah. Okay. Okay, what else? Show. There's the show, right? It's a very small world. There's a very, right? And, and, and you know, there's also the, 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 the you know, there's also the, uh, you know, the park outside and the trees. It's a very limited world. Yeah. No, he does not. I mean, on some level, though, he does. Meaning, he's in my world on some abstract sense. Uh, China's in my world on some abstract sense. So yes. They're both in the same world. That's, one second, one second. That's right. Th- this is very important, is that worlds have asymmetrical relationships. The child can exist in your world. That's not the same thing as you existing in the child's world. In fact, when a child is born, this is what's really strange, but when a child is born, other people don't actually exist in their world yet. Why not? Because they don't have the realization. Of yeah, there's not a sense of them as people. It takes time for that, for, for their world to expand and develop. Yeah. So is a world an inherently subjective thing? Exactly. Perfect. I mean, you're saying that. So that's when Kabbalah uses the word. When when Kabbalah uses the word, when the Kabbalah uses the term "world," it's entirely subjective. Okay, you're saying the Kabbalah. This because we're talking about the idea of Kabbalistic worlds. I'm not talking about like worlds in the sense of like you know, I don't know some other kind. Um, yeah, that's why the Rambam says that it's not called Elam Hazah because it doesn't exist now. It's because this is the world that you can experience. You are subjectively aware of this world, and you are not subjectively aware of the quote world to come. But it's not like it's not there. It's there. It exists. It's the world you will come to experience. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Now there is a catch to this, which is that with people. Some elements of their world exist independent of their subjectivity and then cause their subjectivity. For instance, it is not the case that you exist in my world because I'm aware of you. It's you exist and then you somehow enter my world and as a result you become, I become aware of you. Right? My awareness of you doesn't cause you to exist. That makes sense? As opposed to say... Um, your thoughts, if, you're not, if you don't think your thoughts, they wouldn't exist at all. So... With people, sometimes the object in your world exists and then, you, and then that results in you being subjectively aware of it. And sometimes your subjectivity is actually creating the object. Like say a thought is a good example of that. Okay. Um, however, when you talk about God, 
God's relationship with things is what brings them into being. So if God has a certain relationship with something, then it exists in that way. And if he has a relationship with other things in other ways, it exists in that way. In other words, if God, relates to, if God doesn't relate to something, it has zero existence. Just to illustrate what I mean by this, if God were to hate something, what would happen? That would cause the thing to exist, because what is hatred? It's right. If God were to love something, what would that do? It would cause it to exist. Would they exist in the same way? No, because one is, one is being created by God's love for it, and the other is being created by God's hate for it. What if God doesn't have any relationship with something at all? It's not part of God's subjective um, experience. It exist? Then it wouldn't exist at all. Okay. What? Well, if you so 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 this is why we have to be careful is that we tend to use the word subjective, and um, in to mean many different things, and I mean it in its very literal sense of in relation to a subject. Which implies that there could be something outside of relationship to that subject, but the whole thing we're saying is that there's nothing outside of relationship to. That. Right. Exactly. Yeah. In other words, in other words, from the perspective of Kabbalah, reality is exists by virtue of God's relationship with it. So reality is maybe objective. There is an objective reality, but what determines that objective reality is God's subjective experience of it. So if God finds something disgusting, then it is objectively disgusting because it's his disgust for it that gives it its existence. So are you saying that God can't be neutral about something? Um... It depends what you mean by neutral. If, if you mean if you mean neutral in the sense that he has he 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 has sees both sides of it, then it will be multifaceted. If you mean that he has zero relationship with it, then it wouldn't exist, right? But he can like love and hate it. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Most things God ha- loves and hates different aspects of. Yes. Wait, so is this different than how we say God creates? Well, this is a this is just a deeper way of saying God. What it means that God creates when God is sub, when God relates to something, that thing becomes real. But does, how does he relate to something if he didn't? Well, that's what the difference between you and God is that God, God, the God, the causality works. Relationship causes existence, and, our, and with us, at least for the more tangible stuff, it's. Mm-hmm. Existence is a precursor to relationship, right? So first I, something exists, then I can become aware of it, and then I can have a relationship with it, right? So there's a process of things that existed outside my world entering my world. And again, we have some things that aren't like that, like your, like your thoughts. Your thoughts we generally think of as you actually being the source of. Okay? Yes? Jews eating shrimp? says in the Torah, Shem finds it disgusting, so, it's disgusting. Yeah, this really does mess with, like, the whole idea that, like, you know, a lot of things are just a matter of personal opinion, but, okay. So now. Can't, so, for, we wouldn't say that rotting garbage is disgusting to a Oh, no, it is. It's just, if you wanted a, if you wanted a, a written Torah example, then Jews eating shrimp. Um, but, yeah, rotting garbage is disgusting. That's why there's all sorts of halachas about it as a disgusting thing. Basically, if you want to know what God thinks about something, you should look in the Torah and he'll tell you, because everybody tells you what he thinks about it. And if your perception of it lines up with what the Torah says about it, then you and God are seeing eye to eye. And if not, then you're living in your own little bubble. Okay. But that's not the main point of this. Yeah. If garbage is objectively disgusting, as such things, 
the whole story with the Hasidim who were dancing because of the um, toilet that might be in their jail cell. Yeah. Um, if that thing is objectively disgusting, what is the party coming from? That by not davening, they're fulfilling the will of God, and therefore they're. Like, and they're celebrating that even though something objectively disgusting is in the room. And yes. Them from yes, because by not davening, they're then fulfilling the will of God. I want to go more into that, but yeah. Okay. So now, so when we speak about these worlds, whose worlds are they? These four worlds. Hashem. They're Hashem's world. Okay. Now, how does he have multiple worlds? He has multiple He has multiple ways of relating to things. And so we analogize this into the three ways people, people themselves tend to have four worlds. Now, is your four worlds an exact parallel to God's four worlds? No. But is it a rough parallel? Yeah, so we'll work with that. So number one, okay, number one is... We're going to work for, we're going from the bottom up because that's easier. Well, number one is called the world of action. Why is it called the world of action? I'm talking about your world. It's not God's world. Why is it called the world of action? Because how are you present in that world? In what way are you present there? You're there as the one who makes actions. Right? So when, there's, when you make stuff happen out in the world and you relate to the world in a way that, you, that you're actually doing things... That's a certain level of reality. So, for instance, when you're cleaning up the room, right? There, you are in the room, the room is a reality to you, and you have the ability to change the room. But you'll notice that when you're, when you're cleaning up the room, you actually have to comport yourself with how the room is, right? If you magically just want the room to be clean, does that get it clean that way? No, you have to actually go pick up the things and you have to spend the right amount of time and energy to do the things in that way. And at the end of the day, if you, everything goes right, the room is as you desire it to be. So when you're taking an action, what are you, when you're, is that there's these things that they exist outside of you. They have their own rules. They have their own structure. And if you want to make changes, what do you have to do? You have to play by their rules. And at the end of the day, you might succeed and you might fail. Right? You, might have, you might be able to make the those things the way you want, you succeed in your actions or you did it. Right. That's one world. And that world, how, how much power do you really have? How, 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 how much in control are you? So you're in somewhat control, like you could clean up the room, you could build a building, right? You can do stuff, but at the end of the day, who sets the rules for what you can and cannot do? That, 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 all the things. So you aren't setting the rules. You're just having to play by someone else's, some other thing's rules. And even when you succeed, at the end of the day, you know, the things are still different than you. They're still separate from you. They're just this external stuff. Okay? Because this idea that you can use your volition to make the external reality different is what Torah means, when, is, what, is what we mean by action. That's what action is. By the way, which means an action is only an action if somebody is trying to change reality. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, if, like writing is, why is writing an action? Why is writing an action? You have to do it. No. Are the words on the paper? No. Do you want the words on the paper? 
And if you want the words on the paper and they're not on the paper, and then you, you cause the words to be on the paper, that's called... So you're changing the external things that are outside of you to be in accordance with your will. When you achieve that, that's called action. Now, we do action mainly with our hands, but that's what action is. No, I'm not going to get into that today. It does, but I'm not getting into that. I will, but not today. Yeah. Is an action also considered like talking? No. Talking is the next world. is the world of speech. Why is talking a different world? Because what is the purpose of talking? Well, first off, can you talk to rocks? Yes. No, you cannot. You cannot talk to rocks. See, we have to be careful is that just because we use a word doesn't mean that that word, is the, that word that we're using is how that word is used when we speak about it in a particular context. In this case, chassidus. When chassidus talks about speaking, speaking means the process by which you get someone else's mind to be on the same page as your mind. So can you speak to rocks? Because rocks don't have... Can you utter mouth noises at a rock? Yes. Sure. Like, that's fine. Can you imagine the rock is understanding you? Sure. But like, you're not speaking to the rock because it's like, it's like you can't, it's like you can't build, it can't build a house out of, out of, out of uh, gumdrops and, and unicorns. Try it. See if it works. It just can't work. In order to speak to somebody, they need to have a, they need to be a somebody. They need to have a mind. That's like a prerequisite, because what is that? The world of speaking is that there are minds other than your own in your world, and what do you want those minds to do? Understand to understand you, to empathize with you, to be on the same page as you. Yeah. Does this um, include talking to animals who like understand your speech, like dogs being like, go outside, like stay, and they know. I understand they emotion. So there is some elements of speech in a very limited sense that you can say about animals. However, in truth, what Chassidus is, is actually trying to get at something deeper because speech is specifically has to be deal, done in a form of language. And the idea is that with speech, you're able to bring the person's mind closer to your own, not simply, get, not simply call attention to things that were already in their mind. So for instance, what, what I'm doing right now is I'm taking things that I understand and you do not understand. And I'm trying to get you to understand them. When you tell a dog to go outside, right? Outside is not new to the dog's mind, right? You're just trying to take what's already in the dog's mind and call certain things to the dog's attention. So that's, that's considered to be like somewhere in the nether zone between speaking and acting. In fact, giving someone an instruction to do something in chassidus is generally not, is generally not really considered full speech. Because if you're telling someone to go do something, even a human being, right? They, so, so you're just telling them to, to, you're trying to change the physical world. You happen to be doing it with your mouth instead of your hands. The idea is, are you trying to build a new subjective experience that didn't exist in their mind so that their mind is on the same level and with the same, having the same experience as your mind? And that requires a level of abstraction which you need language for. Um, if you want to know the difference in language and just general communication, speak to a linguist. But, uh, yeah. Because they're, because they're, because they're, be, so. Between animals, where they say, like, they make a sound and that says, like, this is my mate, and 
Right, but but those things, those things, those things already exist in minds. So in other words, I'll give you an, I'll give you, I'll give, I'll give you an example, which is the best use of language, best use to illustrate this. Okay. What is? Explain to me what the sentence means. If I had not come to teach you today, okay, I would have had to have a good reason for that. What does that mean? You need a reason not to teach. So first off, I'm dealing with something that's called a counterfactual. I'm talking about what isn't real as opposed to what is real, right? And I'm saying, and in the non-real world, how things are conditionally dependent, right? In order to do what? Why, what's the purpose of making statements like that? Why are we talking about a world that doesn't exist? To vo- validate that this, the world that does exist is like very special. Okay. To say something about the world that does exist, right? So you're doing actually a lot of, you're doing something that's very abstract, mm-hmm. okay? Now, this is something that, 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 that you, you can't do with just communication where, where you have things that refer to things in reality. So if I have a sound or scent or dance that refers to mate, and I have another one that refers to, to me, and another one that refers to you, and I group them together, I'm not doing anything similar to what I do when I'm speaking about like, you know, conditionals and counterfactuals. So is it not speech when a child says, that's mine? Like that communicates a subjective reality. It's only speech because of what it's going to build into. You see what I'm saying? Because the, the real idea of getting someone else's mind to conform to yours is you're getting something to be new in their mind. Not just to call attention to what's already in their mind. Things that are already in their mind. So that's why the real speeching, real, not real speeching, real speech, real speech involves, like, like a good example of, of, of speech that we have um, is like when we tell stories. And why do we tell stories? Well, we don't just tell stories to say what happened. We tell stories as a way of building new values and new assumptions and new uh, norms in another person's mind so that their mind will match our own using completely made-up things that never happened or using something that did happen, but its significance is not that literal event. So, so speech, is, it, speech depends on powers that are unique to language rather than just simple communication. I don't want to go into more than that. Animals have something that is similar um, but speech is actually something entirely different, and that's what actually allows us to build on each other's knowledge um, and, and do really weird things, um, such as develop codes of law or theology or stuff like that. So the whole, like, it's mine because the concept of ownership already exists? And because, because the concept of ownership is, 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 is exists in some sense, and you can see that it's really a concept because of how it develops later on. Like, you, we, we use the, in other words, use the future to understand more about the past. But between animals, meaning another animal doesn't see in any way that this is your mate. Right, so you, doesn't it create a new idea in that other animal's mind? No, because there's basic. I mean, the way the way understand it is that the animal has a, the animal has a sense of of kind of like whatever the norms of that those animal whatever the things are with those animals. So use territory, right? The animal has a sense like if I cross into another animal's territory, I'm going to have to fight them for it, and I have to decide whether I want to fight them for it. But that's something that's kind of built into the nature of the animal. So because they already get the concept, the specific instance of it isn't new to them. Right. And that's why you can't really teach animals new concepts. Right. 
they, they can have very sophisticated minds. That's, that's not the point here. It's just that, but, but whatever they kind of are, start with, that's the, what you're working with and you're just calling attention to things. Um, so, the Chassidah says dogs are, are very sensitive to emotion. I guess people who have dogs are aware of that, that dogs are very sensitive to emotion. But if you start talking about your existential issues to the dog, it just picks up that you feel sad. But the existential issue itself it's not, a, it's, a, it, it, it's, not, it's not that they don't speak the language, they don't have language, they don't have the idea of recreating something totally different in another person's mind. Um, yeah. Does say anything about cats? I uh, definitely say anything about cats. Okay. Next question. Is, so is it not considered speaking if you're talking to me in a language that I don't understand? Yeah, or it's a failed act of speaking. Okay. If, I, if I'm attempting to and you don't understand the language, then yeah. Okay. So that's it. So there's one world, there's one level of the world in which I live where there's a bunch of things, and I'm trying to make the things the way I want them to be. That's called the world of action. There's another whole world where the things in my world aren't things, they're other people, they're other minds, and I want those minds to understand me and empathize with me. Yeah. Um, and then there is a third world, which is the world of my thoughts. Now, who sets the rules there? You do. Yeah, it's entirely me. And who's privy to my thoughts? You. Only me. Okay. So do you see? What, do you, do you, so there's 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 this kind of trade-off. As the as the, the lower worlds, they're much more tangible and externalized. But your role in those worlds is much more limited. And the higher world, right, which would be the world of thought. Your complete control. So it's limited, but you have complete control. You have complete control. Okay. Now, there's one more world. So you have action, you have speaking, and you have thinking. What's the one more world? Well, is there stuff about you that can change? Like, for instance, your values, your emotions, your memories, right? So that's a world, but you'll notice that those things, they don't, they're not like thoughts. In the sense, like, I can think about one thing and I switch to think about something else. But my experiences, my values, my moods, my hopes, my dreams, those things are much deeper. So those kind of, those kind of exist on a much more intimate level. So we can speak about a fourth world, which is not the world of my thoughts, but is kind of more the world of my character, of my personality. And those things I'm not even aware of unless I do what? Think about them. Do you really know what's important to you? Sometimes. Sometimes. That's only if you're doing a good job of somehow getting that into your thoughts. But a lot of times things are important to you and you aren't aware of it. Yeah. Are you in control? <sighs> character personality. Yeah, it's more like the world of your character personality. Um, are you in control? Yes, but it's much more indirectly because you're not even aware of it. So you have to kind of like indirectly change things. It, I mean, it, you could be, it could be, it could be consciously aware of it, but when you're consciously aware of it, then it enters the realm of thought. Okay. So now, where are you most? You said you're only aware of it when you think about it. You're only aware of it when you think about it, right? But then it becomes part of your thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So in other words, thinking is like speaking, but to yourself. Spe- thinking is like speaking between your unconscious and your conscious mind. That's a way of thinking about it. Whoa. <laughs> 
So there's your un- so you can say there's this there's this reality of who you are that you're not always consciously aware of. Then there's your consciousness, and when you're trying to communicate about yourself and that inner part of you to the conscious level of your existence, you call, call that thought. When you try and get someone else's mind to to be on the same page, you call that speech. And when you try and just manipulate objects out there in the world, that's called the world of action. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate on the idea that you can control your like identity, personality, character? No. It's not for right now. Okay. I, I will get to that later. Is that no, to those no. Okay. Well, no. Okay. So the the key point that I want you to appreciate, there's a lot that we can say about this. I want to just focus on one point. If 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 we were to think about this, there is a different kind of state that you have to be in as you move from one world to the next. So just think about it. Have you ever had the experience where um, it's like hard to talk to somebody? Yeah? Because you're transitioning from the world of thought into the world of? No. The world of speech. And when you do that, you have to now accord yourself the fact that on the one hand, you have to be like conveying what you really think and what you really believe, etc. But on the other hand, you have to make sense to them. And that actually requires a lot of effort and attenuating yourself to them. Whereas in the realm of thought, you're much freer. But in the realm of thought, you're also somewhat limiting because you have to focus on one thing at a time. You can't think about all different things at once, can you? Okay. And in the realm of action, you're really limited because like, whatever, whatever the demands of the world outside of you are to get whatever you want done, you're going to have to play by those rules and you have no say on the matter. Like, it doesn't matter how much you want the room to be magically cleaned up unless you actually go pick up every single item in the room and put it away, it won't be cleaned up. So there is, as you move from these worlds, what's happening is you are allowing things other than yourself to limit you and to define the way you're, pre- the way you're present, the way you're, the way you're involved. So for instance, if someone only knew you from your actions, versus someone knew you from having a conversation with you, who would really say would know you better? Conversation. Right. Does that make sense? Because in the conversation, you're able to bring more out of yourself. In fact, the whole idea of the conversation is that they should really have a sense of what's going on inside of you. Or in action, the only thing we know is that you're capable of doing certain things and you thought it was good to do them. But beyond that, we don't really know why. Where would the idea of like, action speak louder than words? Because we have the tremendous ability to... Um, to say things that are true-ish about us, but our actions tend to be a much more consistent thing. So if I say one thing and do another, you can tell that probably the action has a deeper core to it, but you still don't know what it, where it's coming from. So if I see a person every single day do an action consistently, that says something, I just don't know what it says. It says something very, you know, says something very significant about the person, but what is it saying? I don't know. In fact, a lot of when we think we know why a person does what they did is either we're making unjustified assumptions or we've gotten to know them. Okay. And then in your own thoughts, you're much more overt. You're much more revealed. You don't have to worry about making sense to anybody else, right? On the other hand, when you can only think about one aspect of your life, one aspect of your existence at a time, whereas there's this totality of all of your different experiences and hopes and dreams, that level is like all of you at once. So as you move down, there's this trade-off between things being more overt and concrete on the one hand, 
but you being more limited and hidden on the other hand. Okay. That makes sense? Okay. Now, so when we say God has four worlds, what does that mean God has four worlds? There's a way in which God is aware of things that are just him. That's called the world of Atsilos. And then there's a way where God is aware of things which aren't him, but he's not bothering to care whether it makes sense or clear to anybody else. And that's called the world of God's thought, or also known as the world of Bria, the world of creation. Then there's where God is trying to relate to things in a way that those things should understand him. Now, if God wants things to understand him, how explicit can God be? Not that explicit, because the things that he creates are smaller than him, they're less than him. Right? If I want somebody to understand me, I have to make sure that I'm not saying things beyond their capacity for understanding. If I want someone to empathize with me, I have to say things that are within their capacity to empathize with. So God is less revealed when he's trying to relate to things in a way of speaking. And then he's even less revealed when he's relating to things in a way where he's just the actor who's making stuff happen. Okay? So if you, if, if you are a creature of a particular world, it would change how you are innately aware of God. If you were, if you were in the world of action, you would have the sense that God is the thing making everything be what it is. Would you have any other sense of God? No. But if you lived in the world of Yitzir, the world of God's speech, you would have a sense like God is having a conversation. You actually, God is actually communicating to you and you actually get God on some level. You understand where he's coming from on some level. And what if you lived in the realm of God's thought? Well, then you really wouldn't be your own being, would you? And what if you lived in, on the level, so to speak, God's character? Well, then there, wouldn't, then, then there wouldn't be the idea that God is relating to anything at all. By the way, which world do we live in? None of them. None of them, because we live in a world where God is completely obscured. Right? We don't walk down the street and like... There's God, hold, there's, there's God holding up that building. We don't, we don't have that experience, do we? We don't look up in the sky and like, oh, God is making it rain. That's not the innate experience of living in this world, is it? What's the innate experience of living in this world? What are we aware of? Physicality. We're aware of things. We're aware that God is making it rain. No, you're not. You might believe that God makes it rain. You might be able to logically argue that God makes it rain. Right? But it doesn't feel like there's someone making it rain and there's someone keeping the chair intact so you don't fall through it, right? It doesn't feel like that. Does right? no one feel like that in this world? No, there are people that do, which is people can live in, in different levels of worlds. Yeah. Can we train ourselves? Like, if I train myself that every time it rains, I, I go, oh, that's such I'm making it rain, and then I continue to extend that to other things. Yeah. Then, like... Can I make myself be in another world? Or yes, no? yes, yes, okay. yes. So it's not just an inherent thing that some people... Well, there's an inherent level of ability, and then there's how much you work on it. Okay. So here's the thing. That means God has to have this ability, if, if you will, to, at, to limit, to attenuate in what way he relates to things, in what way he interacts with things. Right? In fact... One of the difficult things in talking to people is you have to realize that they don't know what you know, they don't think the way you think, and so you have to speak differently than you would naturally think. That make sense? Okay. Um, so I teach 18-year-old boys, 
and you know what I discovered teaching 18-year-old boys Tanya, which I'd never done since my first year doing it? That the way I usually teach Tanya is not effective with teaching 18-year-old boys. So I had to develop a whole new way of teaching it. Why? Because I need to reach their minds, right? So God has to have this quality to change kind of the mode he's operating under. Does that make sense? In other words, is God going to just be the doer of everything? Or is God going to be a communicator to speak and try and share things? Or is God not even going to bother to relate to other beings and he's going to suffice with everything just being in his own thought? Which one does God do? All of them. But that means God is kind of operating on different head spaces, if you will. Yeah. I don't, no, I don't really understand why Hashem, like... Why does he have to limit himself for us to like see it? Like, why can't we just see him in this world in that way? I don't want to talk about this world. This world, I don't want to talk about. This world is not part of this discussion. Okay. So. You use the example. Yeah. Right now, somebody is drawing. How much force are you putting on the marker? It's a marker. Yeah. How much force are you putting on that marker? Very light. Why? Why? Um, to get color out on the page. Well, why not put more? You don't want to push it. I don't want to break. I don't want to break my pens. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Why are you making very, very subtle strokes? Why don't you just like make very long strokes? Because it's a faster way to color. But wouldn't it be faster just to go like that? Why not? No. Why? Because <laughs> it would exert too much effort of my physical body. And you want to Going like this and you would, be, would take a lot more effort than also just using my wrist. Use yeah, you want to stay in the lines. Yes. You want to stay in the lines? Yeah. Okay, I can like take any action that anybody's doing and start asking questions like this, right? And you'll notice that it has nothing to do with your ability. It has everything to do with the task. Given that this is the task, and this is how markers work, and this is how paper works, right? And this is the nature of how arms are. Like, like, if you want to achieve this task in an effective way, this is how you have to do it, right? So if you want to engage a level of reality that's so external to you, you're going to have to really limit yourself and play by its rules. But when you converse, if you're that limited, you ever have a conversation with somebody and you get the sense they're not really talking to you? They're just like throwing out responses? Not really conversation, not really talking, not really sharing, right? If you're going to converse, you have to have this kind of back and forth with, am I being true to my own beliefs, my own ideas, my own perspectives? And at the same time, am I saying it in a way that resonates, that they understand, that they empathize, they get where I'm coming from? It's a totally different mindset. Totally different, right? And then in your own thoughts, you, don't have, you can ignore what anyone else is saying altogether. Like, nobody else's mind matters. It's all on your own terms. But if you want to like do anything constructive in your thought, you're going to have to focus on certain things and cut out other things and be you know, mentally disciplined. But then the totality of your life is so much bigger than all of that, right? So there's these different spaces, different mental states. So you need an ability to traverse between them. Yeah? So there is a sphera that refers to God's ability to be in these different states. You know what that sphera is known as? It's known as malchus. Malchus is what allows God to be different in different, to relate to things in different ways. So he can relate to everything as if he's thinking about it. That creates one kind of reality for God. But he can relate to everything as if he's speaking to it. And that would make it different. What's the like, English translation? Malchus? There is no, it's a technical term. Okay. Because yeah. like, chesed is like... 
Yeah, but even even as you go into those things, it's really translating them is like really. I mean, you could. It's called sovereignty if that helps you in English. Right? I don't think it helps. Okay, and God can even get to the point where He only manifests as the mover and shaker, the one who makes things happen. Okay, so now, so God has this ability to present Himself on different levels to make things effective. Now let's think about this. What does a womb do? A womb takes something and says, okay, well, if there's going to be an eye, the eye's going to have to work like this. And it takes things and makes it operate on different levels. So the idea of the four worlds is about taking something and differentiating it so it operates on different levels. In this case, God operates on different levels. And a womb does that in reproduction. So this idea that, this idea that the, the, the godly essence is manifest on different levels is because of this idea that God can operate on different levels. And if God can operate on different levels, then godly souls reveal and manifest their godliness on different levels. By going De- Right, depending on how Malchus develops them, which is what he's referring to as the four worlds. So some souls are meant to bring out God's ability to make things happen, and so they bring out a very limited sense of God, and some souls are more prophetic and like God speaking to them. Different souls operate on different levels because of this process of God operating on different levels. And that's what the four worlds are. The four worlds are not different, like, things. There's God and how he relates to reality because he can operate, broadly speaking, on four different modes. Kind of like a person operates broadly on four different modes. Again, you can subdivide and subdivide it. So that ability to develop and to bring out different things in different ways, that's what gives rise to these four worlds. That's Malchus. That's the same process that gives rise to the differentiation of the different godly souls. Okay. Which, by the way, now means that you can speak about things, God relating to things in different ways, and you relating to God in different ways. It's not merely all in your head. Remember I said you can't speak to a rock? Well, if God is relating to you as a thing and not as someone to talk to, right, then that kind of limits the scope of your relationship with God. So if God, if, 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 um, like, let's say some people have a boss that the boss refuses to engage them as a person. You know, ever know about a boss like that? They just, like, they just, they just, they just basically issue instructions like you're some kind of a machine. Right? Is the fact that you don't have a normal human relationship entirely your fault? Or that's a lot to do with the mode in which they're relating to you. They're relating to you as a physical object, so what are you supposed to do? So if God relates to you in a very distant way, you can work on yourself as much as you want, but he's not sharing those things with you. On the other hand, the, vice, the reverse is true. What if God is, what if someone is trying to really share and open up and you just pay them like a cursory amount of attention? Then even though like in a normal everyday professional setting that might not be insulting, but because they're really trying to open up, it becomes very insulting, right? That's why if a person like tunes out when their spouse is talking to them, it's a big affront. But if you tune out when your boss is droning on, it's like not the biggest deal in the world. <laughs> Unless the boss is like highly oversensitive. Okay. So, so that, that means that there's actually many different ways different souls can relate to God. And, and what is outside the limits of one soul might be even considered somewhat sinful for an, a different soul. If God is trying to relating, if God is trying to bring out godliness in this very communicative way that the soul is really supposed to understand where God is coming from, the soul is not trying to get that. That could be sinful. 
And in contrast, another soul, God is not trying to share that with the soul, bring that out with that soul, so then why is that soul even trying to achieve that? So what you were saying, Nora, about you were able to like, heighten your awareness of things that's like, actually not so true. I said, well, it, it, I said it, if God is relating to you that way. So if God is trying to show you that he's running the world and you are not paying attention, that's something you can work on. But if God is not trying to, give, to, to communicate with you in a way that's more analogous to speech, then there's no point in, quote, listening to God because he's not telling you anything. Now, there does re- open up a whole other possibility, which is that if God can navigate and, and, and change all these different ways of operating, that means he can also change it for you. And maybe you could say, like, God, I'd like you to start talking to me and stop treating me like an object. Maybe he'll say yes and start talking to you. And maybe he'll say no, right? Isn't him saying no still talking to you? I mean, not saying no. I mean, maybe he'll just... not answering? Yeah. That could also happen. I, in other words, if you think about just... If you think about how different... Like a lot of conflicts and relationships occur when two people are trying to relate to each other in different worlds. Like, let's say one person wants to get a task done and sees your place in their life at that moment as simply another body to get things done, and you're trying to have, like, a conversation and get to know each other at the same time. So, like, it's not going to work, because one's trying to relate to the other person in the world of action, the other one's trying to relate to the other person in the world of speech. And so you have to, like, figure out which world you're operating in. So we speak of the four worlds, we're speaking about God's world and how he relates to reality and that creates these different levels of spiritual existence. Yeah. Um, what, do we have a baseline assumption about, like, generally speaking, how Hashem relates to us, on which level? Yeah. It's like a Pareto distribution, that the more people are on a lower level and fewer people are on a higher level. So, is it specific, like, Well, basically, not really. I'm just going to say one thing and then we're going to move on, which is generally that the souls that God is acting on, or we call those nefesh, the souls that God is speaking to, we call those ruach, and the souls that God is relate to God on the level of thinking, we call those neshama. So those three different levels actually parallel the different worlds. And then the fourth, the, the fourth world, the, called the world of Atzilus, that's the world where like, the essence itself resides. So, refer back to my discussion about Nefesh Ruach and Neshama that we did earlier. That's a whole different thing. Okay. So what that means is like this. That when God has, on one hand, this sphere called Chachm, which houses an essence, and he has this other sphere which allows him to operate on different levels, which creates this idea of different worlds. And when Chachma and Malchus get together, they make babies. And those babies are godly beings that have different levels of manifesting godliness in different ways. But they're all still equally godly. So once it's in Because the analogy only works so far. And that detail. Wait, sorry, what did they create? Malchus well, and Malchus is, if, if Chachma is like the father and Malchus is like the mother, then it creates little babies. That are? Godly souls. But different. Oh, but the different godly souls are different. Is the difference coming from the Chachma or from the Malchus? Malchus. 
from the malchus. Okay. However, I lied. It's not that it creates babies. It just creates one baby. And the difference between different souls are not like this. What we learned last week. It's not the difference. The different souls are like different people, but the difference are different. Different souls are like different parts of the same body. Right. So just like the womb differentiates between different. Right. We're all united as one. Right. Okay. Given all of that. Sorry. Can you just say that again? that the difference between different souls is not like different people, but different parts of the same body. Remember I told you that the, the Medrash says that if a Jew hurts you and you want to take revenge, that's as silly as the left hand grabbing the knife out of the right hand to take revenge because you're all, we're all one. That's Yeah. What? What? You're allowed to take revenge? That's one specific thing. <laughs> Wait, so which specific part of your body is it reasonable to stab the other specific part of your body? The part that's gangrene needs to be cut off. Okay. All right. What's that one thing that's created? What? What's what's Chachman Malchus? Like, what's that one thing that... That what? God, well, without one thing, that's the totality of the godly souls. That's the Jewish people in their essence. Yeah. Okay. Now, so then we go back to the the, the actual. The, so going back to the analogy of the child, all the different parts of the person of the child's body, they're all united with the essence, but that depends on their connection with which part, the brain. Okay. So reading that, reading up from prison. Nevertheless, we're after the period. <laughs> the period that's then, and I, I'm afraid to say page numbers and lines because everyone is a different print here. Nevertheless, they remain. I found the period. Nevertheless, they remain bound and united with a wonderful and essential unity with their original essence and entity, namely the extension of the supernal wisdom. Inasmuch as the, the nurture and life of the Nefesh Ruch Neshama of the ignorant are drawn from the Nefesh Ruch Neshama of the saints and the sages, the heads of Israel in their generation. Okay? So the same way that your hand stays human because it's attached to your brain, if you're not a head soul, how do you stay godly? How does the, how does the godly souls stay godly? They're, because they're all attached to the head souls. Okay. Now, there's two more parts of this chapter. Whoa. We have, we have, you know. Okay. Yeah. We're going to learn about that. Okay. Okay, here's the thing. The Baal Shem Tov was a bit um, different. So one different thing they said is that simple people have some profound things that they can teach the great scholars. Another thing was that the Baal Shem Tov said that everything in life is a way, can be a way of connecting to Hashem if you just know how to approach it correctly. But there's another thing that the Baal Shem Tov taught, which is that you have to have, be attached to a tzaddik. Like a rabbi? Which later on, so you look at early, early writings of the Baal Shem Tov's disciples, the, the term is tzaddik. So like the academics like to call it tzaddikism, because, you know, it's <laughs> academics. But basically what's known in the proper language as a rabbi. Now, before we go on, what was the Baal Shem Tov's what was this idea that a person needs to have a relationship with a Rebbe? What is that? What did he mean? So before we go into that, I want to just put some things on the table that the Baal Shem Tov did not innovate. Number one, 
we spoke about this before is that there's a concept of rabbinic authority, right? That how does halacha work? Is halacha just what's found in books? Nope. No. Halacha actually has to be adjudicated by a living, breathing rabbi and that their rulings are binding on people and even on future generations. Okay? So that, what? Oof. Yeah. So the idea of rabbinic authority and a person needs to ha- be subject to some kind of rabbinic authority, was this an innovation of the Baal Shem Tov? No. Okay. A person also needs a teacher. What is a teacher meant to do as opposed to rabbinic authority? Teach. Okay, why do you need a teacher? Like, you can read books. It's print, stuff is printed. I understand it. To p- give over the information. Well, write down the book. Then why do you need a teacher? To also, to understand, to know, if you understand it. What's the problem? Why, by the way, why don't we call writing speech? Why is writing not really part of the world of speech? Yeah. When you write something, it has to be able... You kind of say, like, okay, this is going to relate to whatever, my intended audience. But you don't really know who that is. When you speak to a particular person, you're able to adapt what you're saying to the person you're directly addressing. And a teacher is able to bring an idea to you and your intellect and your experience in a right. way that a book can't. Right. And there's another added part to this, which is there's a possibility of follow-up feedback and confirmation. I can make sure that you've understood me by asking you to say things back to me. You can clarify that you're going to be asking a question. I can look... We can read body language, tone of voice, right? None of that really happens if you just write. Okay. So there's an idea that this is one of the reasons why the oral Torah is meant to be oral, is God did not want all of his wisdom found in books. Because if it's all found in books, what is guaranteed to happen? People are going to misinterpret it. The way to ensure that something is taken correctly is to make sure that you have to have a living person explain it to you and that it, it's a developed relationship. They're not just explaining one thing. You're like coming back and you're asking questions. You're getting... A... But it is written down. Well, actually, the cool thing is that there was, the, Torah, the oral Torah was written down in such a way that it's not, you cannot understand what it was intended so without the oral tradition. Even write it down. So that because um, basically, you know, like some people speak from notes. So basically, that's what they did. The Mishnah's notes, the Gemara's notes, it's all notes. Even the Tanya, the author says, this is just notes. He even writes the introduction, like, you need a teacher to teach this to you. The idea that this is the magnum opus, and you just, that, that, that's antithetical to, to the whole idea of how God wants the wisdom of Torah preserved. He wants that person should, as the Mishnah says, a Selah Harab. You should have a teacher. What? It's a problem because on the one hand it helps, but on the other hand you 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 have the issue. I mean, a lot of times what ends up happening is people, you know, misinterpret what they read, and, and this is always a trade-off. And so the the, the 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 idea has been is that more books are better as long as we never get to the point that we think books are substituting living people. Because the more books, the more people you reach, they, then they can have questions, and they can finally reach out to a rabbi and ask. But the idea that you're having to have a book as opposed to an actual teacher. Okay. So that's, so rabbinic authority, a teacher, friends. The Mishnah says everybody has to have a friend. Mm, that's okay. okay. What's a friend? Someone you buy, apparently. That's right. You have to buy friends. <laughs> okay. okay, so a friend is, some, a friend a friend is somebody who you are willing to expend resources on their well-being and they're willing to expend resources on 
your well-being. When you have two people that that kind of relationship, that's very important. A person needs friends. The, the Gemara says either friends or death. Oh, that's intense. It is intense. <laughs> There's actually a story of someone who died, two stories of someone who died who had no friends. We won't get into the stories. We're because not they didn't have friends. Because they didn't have friends. Does Belgium just said you need people? Friend is somebody who is willing to put time and effort into your well being, and you're willing to put time and effort into their well being, and therefore you can really value them for who and what they are, and they can value you for who and what they are, independent of whether you actually agree with each other or even like each other. Friends are hard to come by. Is family friends? No. Can they be friends? They can, but it's tricky. Do you need friends other than family? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the exception, the, yeah, yeah, you need friends other than family. Okay, moving on, moving on. Okay, so what about prophets? Prophets is not something the Baal Shem have introduced. A prophet is someone who communicates with God, and if you want to know what God thinks about a particular issue and it was not put into the Torah, get a prophet. So, for instance, if you misplaced your donkeys, <gasps> he donkeys and she donkeys. If you misplaced your donkeys and you want to know where they are, what should you do? Go to prophet of God, right? If you want to know whether you should do a business deal or not, what? Go ask a prophet. Okay. Okay. Wait. So that's a fourth thing. That's a that's a fourth thing. Prophets. The Baal okay. Shem Tov introduced them? No, no, these are things that existed before the Baal Shem Tov, that are part of Judaism. He's what did he say about them? I mean, I, no, these, before oh, we get to the Baal Shem Tov, I want you to know there's all this stuff that's already there. That's not new. That's not new. Okay, then there's the idea of a king. Also Saul, wow. Okay, what's a king in Judaism? A leader. A leader. Um, how much loyalty is the king due? How loyal are you supposed to be to the king in Judaism? 100%. How, what, what is 100% like? Like how giving much? Your life That's right. To the point of giving your life up. So if you violate the words of the king, what's the punishment in Torah law? Death. Death. That's a pretty serious kind of leadership, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a king, someone who commands your absolute loyalty. Mm-hmm. And there's the Kohen, the priest. You see, you know this whole idea that we're all supposed to have our personal relationship with God? Okay, well, what does the idea of a kohen mean? Are you supposed to have a, is it just be directly you and God, or is there supposed to be someone else in the middle mediating that relationship on some level? For parts of it, you need someone whose job is to mediate your relationship with God, right? If you want to, no, not rabbis. Rabbis are there to issue halachic rulings. Teachers are there to inform you and guide you. But once you're guided, you know what to do, then it's up to you. But what if you sin and you want atonement? You need to bring a sacrifice, right? We don't have sacrifices anymore. That's a problem. But let's just talk about the idea. If you're supposed to bring a sacrifice, and is a sacrifice just between you and God, or is there a Kohen there who's like helping mediate that relationship? We had a class on Yom Kippur about it, that the ultimate day of our special connection with God. In fact, what do you do on Yom Kippur? Nothing. You fast. And then you hopefully get a good seat to watch the Kohen. <laughs> do everything. Do everything on your behalf. Okay. So there's a lot of... Right? So, so I, what I want you to understand, these ideas are not controversial. These are like built into Judaism in the written and oral Torah before Chassidus, before the medieval period. These are classical things. So what is this idea of a Rebbe that the Baal Shem Tov introduced that was new? Yeah. Can I ask something before answering that? Yeah. Was 
large struggle in Judaism against Kohanim other than like Korah? No, Korah wasn't against Kohanim. He was against who gets to be the Kohen. <laughs> was he or was he? Yeah, he wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. Yeah, read the story. He wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. It's, 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 there's, the commentators have a lot of back and forth on it. Okay. Was there ever like a big Jewish movement to like, we shouldn't have mediators? Or like, I guess there are Karites who reject oral law. But this is in the Chumash. So. Right. I mean, I would say there probably was, but it wouldn't be what we would now call Orthodox. Right. So all these ideas have always been mainstream. Yeah. yeah. Now, to be fair, if you've lived for a thousand or two thousand years without a king and without a prophet... And without Kohanim doing, you know, the sacrifices, you tend to get used to the fact that those things aren't there. Mm-hmm. But they're still there. I mean, they're still part of Judaism. Is that why we have the rabbi? Oh. Is he saying connect yourself to a tzaddik or a rabbi? The wording that he used was tzaddik. But the wording that, got a, the, the, that, that caught on eventually in later generations was rabbi. But so if you look... But it's just a matter of the word. The idea that he, the, the idea that the the idea. I mean, in Tanya, the Alter is actually use a different word. He's gonna he's gonna use Torah scholar. He's gonna use the word scholar. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the content of what they're saying, when the Balshento's disciples wrote down that you have being attached to a tzaddik, or what Chassidim for generations referred to as a Rebbe, and the way, and the way the Alter Rebbe refers to a, a, a Chacham, a Torah scholar, you see that they're all talking about the same idea. So it's just a matter of which word they're using. I'm going to explain. What I first want to get to is what it is, what it's, what it's, that it's something above this. So it's not that, it's not that the Baal Shem Tov said that, that, that there needs to be a person who's rabbinic authority, because there's, you know, that there needs to have teachers, needs to have, need to have friends, that there should even be king, someone who has a king-like role or, or the role of a prophet or even the role of a, a Kohen in the lives of people. So even though there are elements of what people attribute to a Hasidic Rebbe that draw on those things, those are not new ideas. Rosh actually introduced a totally new idea. Yeah. How often the destruction of the base of the Gash? Was there something that took place at the Kahana? We still do. With the Birchus Kahana we do. Pidyan of Ben we do. Pidyan Petr we do. There's still things. It's not like they're sustaining your... Right, it's on the periphery. It's on the periphery. So it was there for freedom. I'm, I mean, once the temple's destroyed, most of what the Kohanim do is, like, not practical. Right, but then you need a 20-year No, or we say that all those elements of Judaism are not really being fulfilled. We're like, our Judaism is, like, just, is, like, lame and lobotomized. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this outside the text and then say it in the text. The Balshamto basically said like this. If you cut off someone's hand, God forbid, then the hand is no longer, the whole hand is no longer functional, right? And the only reason we still consider it a hand is because we know that it should be reattached, right? We spoke about that before. So the Baal Shem Tov said like this, a Jew is only a Jew because a Jew is attached to a tzaddik. And if he's not attached to a tzaddik, then he's not a Jew. Is that, he out? Is he yeah, that's pretty extreme. World or in the okay. Aren't we all connected? Oh, 
So the trick to this is to understand attachment is not a black and white thing. You either are or you're not. And that's what Dalton was going to get into is that attachment comes in degrees and levels and kinds and modalities, which means you can, it's not are you attached or you're not attached, it's are you more attached or are you less, less attached. And the more attached you are, more the more of a Jew you are, Ow. and the less, yeah, this is an intense kind of a thing. Okay. Well, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put it um, in, in the following way. What is being a Jew all about? Being connected to God. Yeah, okay. And the Gemara says there's a mitzvah. One of the 600 mitzvahs is to be connected to God, to attach yourself to God. And the Gemara says, how is it possibly attached to God? And what does the Gemara answer? Be attached to a scholar. And so what the Alter is going to say is that the Gemara there wasn't referring to people's academic knowledge of Torah. It was referring to this idea we said about the idea that there are head souls. If there are head souls and you're attached to a head soul, then what are you? You're godly. And if that attachment can be stronger, you're going to be more godly. And if the attachment, God forbid, gets weaker, you're going to be less godly. And it's that attachment to God that makes you not halachically Jewish, but in reality, an experienced Jewish. Yes. So now we're going to read this inside. Yep. So this, this bottom of the page, this explains the comment of our sages on the verse, and cleave unto him. And our sages say, and, and what does that mean? He cleaves unto a Torah scholar, is deemed by the Torah as if he had become attached to the very Shekhinah, the divine presence. Yeah, that's not chassidus. Now, what the author was going to do here in time is explain what, how did the Baal Shem Tov understand that? That through the attachment of the scholars, the nefesh, ruach, and the sham of the ignorant are bound up and united with the original essence and the root and the supernal wisdom. And he and his, being, he and his wisdom are one. He is the knower and the knowledge as we learned about earlier. So this idea that we had in an analogy, what keeps the hand human is its attachment to the brain. What keeps my godly soul godly? It's attachment to a tzaddik. And if that attachment can be strengthened, then my soul is going to be more overtly godly. And if my soul is, that attachment is weakened, it will be. And this means that, measure, that kind of measuring your growth is not just in terms of like how many mitzvahs you're doing per se, but it comes in terms of this kind of connection. Now the question is, well, what does it mean to be attached and connect to, to a tzaddik? For what it says here, it could be any tzaddik, provided that you're actually really attached to them. And it doesn't have to be a rabbinic authority. Correct. So, for instance, many Hasidic rabbis were not rabbinic authorities. Mm-hmm. The Baal Shem Tov was not a rabbinic authority. He, he, could, he could if he needed to, but that he just never occupied that role. Most Hasidic rabbis were not... Uh, occupied positions that were not necessarily part of the rabbinic establishment in terms of rabbinic authority. No, so for instance, even in Chabad, even in Chabad... Only two of the Chabad Rebbes actually took positions. Sorry, three, sorry, three of the Chabad Rebbes took positions as rabbinic authorities. The Alter Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe. I said three, I meant two. There was only two, yeah. I said two. The first said two, the yeah, two. Like they chose not to get a authority or they had it and they didn't? 
They chose right. So, for instance, the Rebbe, the Rebbe only got involved as a halachic authority when he felt nobody else was doing something. So, as a general rule, if the Rebbe saw that there's halachic issue, and the rabbinic establishment is dealing with it, then I was like, not part of the rabbinic establishment. My job is to be a Rebbe, not to be part of the rabbinic establishment. But if he saw that the rabbinic establishment was not rising to the task to dealing with something, he was qualified to. So there's a difference between the ability to or not, you know. So you had many things, you know, the, the famous, the famous um, Hasidic Rebbe, Elimelech of Lezhinsk, he never occupied, like he was never the rabbi of a town. People didn't, didn't like come and ask him questions. That were not his, that's not what he, he could have, he, he had that kind of knowledge, but that's not how he used his time. Right. Yeah. Not necessarily, no. Only by a tzaddik would you say that this is true. Only by the idea of a chassidic rabbi would you say that it's true. What about a king? Um, a king, even there, it's, 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 it's hard to put them in strict hierarchy. Like, like the Kohen Gadol and the, and the king, right? What's the hierarchy between them? It's like... Right, so it's, it's specifically in this issue... Um, there's a very famous story from the Gemara that the, the head of the Jewish court, um, Rabbi Gamliel's son, was sick. And he uh, asked his student, Rabbi Hanina Bendosa, to pray. And so his wife was very offended. He's like, you're the head of the entire Sanhedrin. You're the head of the whole Jewish people. Like, the, the, you are the rabbinic and political establishment. Why are you asking your student, Hanina Bendosa, to pray for your son? And so he said that I'm like a minister in front of the king, but Hanina is like a servant in front of the king. Now, how does a minister go to the king? He needs an appointment. He has to have an agenda. It's all very formal. A servant, when does a servant go into the king? The servant. All the time. Yeah. And the idea is that Hanina Mendoza might not necessarily be as, you know, have all the same kind of like knowledge as me and everything else, but the level of his total attachment and devotion to God is much deeper. And so his prayer is much more effective than my prayer. He has, you know, it's like, who, who's, who goes into the king's bedroom and is there when the king is in their private moments? The ministers or the king's servants? So this idea that it, it, it's not that, that you can, you know, you can't make an overall strict hierarchy, but you can definitely say that there are souls that, Need that are that function as the head that when you're attached to them, they give life and there's souls that need to be need to be attached. There's like the limbs and there's the brain. And through that through that the soul maintains and grows in its godliness, which really does change your whole dynamic and how you think of Judaism. Okay, I want to read the parentheses and then we'll end and we'll continue this tomorrow. As for them who willfully sin and rebel against the sages. The nurture of their nefesh, ruach, and neshama comes from behind the back, as it were, from the nefesh, ruach, and neshama of the scholars. Meaning, is it ever the case that someone is actually detached from the head souls, from these tzaddikim? It's the quality of the way. So he gives this idea, there's, the, there's getting the life from the front, and life from the back. We'll talk more about this tomorrow. But the idea is that this is a fluid and dynamic thing. It can grow and it can better. But if it was ever actually cut off, then just like what happens, God forbid, if a limb is cut off. And that really does change...
how you relate to Judaism. Why was it that in Eastern Europe people travel for weeks to be by one of these Hasidic rabbis? Was it because they didn't have any friends? There was no rabbinic establishment? So what's the ultimate reason? To be closer to God. Right, to be closer to God. Now this is a very sensitive topic and can definitely rub people the wrong way. Okay, so we're going to talk more about this tomorrow. But with the, this idea that there's brain souls and, and, and uh, feet souls and hand souls, if you take that to its logical conclusion, it, it produces a whole different depth idea of attaching yourself to Hashem through attaching yourself to a Chacham. That it's no longer about scholarship, it's about this, this, this level of godliness of this person's soul. Well, Mashiach, be considered. Mashiach, be